Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Eduardo Moreno Panquintin, founder and director of the Surgery Hub in Mexico City, who delivered the International Society of Surgery Lecture during Clinical Congress 2022. Dr. Moreno describes his experience training surgical residents in Mexico on safe laparoscopic techniques and developing quality surgical training programs around the world. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Further my disclosures, I have nothing to disclose, but on a second disclosure, I want to say that there's so many people that I have to thank for being contributing to this cause that I'm not going to mention every one of them in, in person. And I do appreciate the support of every one of you. You know who you are. Thank you all. Through these minutes, I would like to guide you to and speak a little bit about who I am, how I think, and why I'm involved in this. And uh, this is one of my favorite modern times philosophers. And don't ever give up what you want in life. I am totally committed with this kind of thinking. Now we see that there's many ways of doing echolysistectomy nowadays, and there's no open technique picture in here. But if you look at this initiative, the Global Surgery 2030, where they look at numbers of what's going to happen around the world in terms of safety and anesthesia and surgery, you have to see that there's five billion people have no access to safe surgery or anesthesia. Every year, there's around 313 million surgical procedures, and only six of them, laparoscopic ones, are undertaken in countries with limited resources. So you, you look at the map of the world, and this leaves a huge area of the world without nice services. Of course, in our subject, safe surgery and safe laparoscopic surgery. In most of these countries, there is no such a thing. Minimal invasive surgery limits complications of open procedures and speed recovery. There's great need of minimal invasive resolution of intra-abdominal pathology in countries with less resources. In these countries, implementation of a minimal invasive technique is undertaken in a non-systematized manner, which increases complications. Minimal invasive surgery is not a luxury. It should be a basic necessity. So there's a need for minimal invasive surgery orthodox surgical education programs. This is my country. It's a beautiful country. It's magical, it's mysterious, and paradoxical. And if you would really like to know more about in depth what Mexico is, I, I strongly suggest to you to read this book by Leslie Bear Simpson, an American writer with big interest in Hispanic and Latin American history that describes about our country and all the intrinsic factors creating what we are. And just to have an example of this, this is a, 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 when Mexico was uh, developing, we have what is called the Great Sim at a latitude north of approximately 90 degrees. From the Great Seam, we have a northern part and a southern part. 
In, in this great sim, we have a belt of volcanoes. And if you look, this is the Gulf of Mexico. And only 120 kilometers from the sea level, we have the highest peak at 18,000 uh, feet. If you can keep going in the other direction of the country, here is Mexico City at 2,400 meters above the sea level. And then you go on to the Pacific, and we have the other, one of the other highest peaks. So you can imagine the problem to her co communities located in between all these mountains. Some of these volcanoes nowadays are still active. And in fact, we have two right in front of Mexico City. And one of them, called the Popocatépetl, exhales uh, steam and ashes almost every other day. Then to the north, above the, the Great Seam, we have deserts. It's a wide extension of deserts. But if you go to the south, to the Yucatan Peninsula, we have what is called the Mayan jungle. It's a very thick knitting of low-lying trees and bundles that you cannot walk through without a machete. Then in the peninsula of Yucatan as well, underneath that jungle, we have these subterraneous rivers that open up once in a while in these waterholes called cenotes. On, on the sides of the deserts, we have forests, and to the south, we have rainforests, which in turn create canyons and rivers and water, really white water bodies. So not everything is pretty. You can imagine that having this kind of orography is very hard to establish communications to equip medical facilities or transfer patients or delivering supplies. It's hard to get general practitioners, even harder specialists, nurses, and ancillary services. If you look at demographics in health, healthcare in Mexico, with general practitioners, maybe we are not too bad from what the OCDE has established at 3.2 general practitioners per 1,000 inhabitants. We have 2.2, and in the United States, you have 2.5. But when we look at a specialist, we have less than one surgeon per, per 1,000 inhabitants. Then, 50% of specialists work in only five major states in the country, and 80% of them are located in urban areas. Only 2.3% of specialists work in rural areas. We estimate that we have around 10,000 general surgeons. Only 3,500 of them are board certified, and we don't know what happens with the other ones. And this is one of the saddest parts. This is, these numbers are from 2014. Every year, there's 27,000 uh, medical students applying for a residency. There's only 7,000 places available to do residency. So you can see the shortage of specialists that we have every year getting wider. And this is important because in this, uh, in this scale of surgeon anesthesia and obstetrician uh, index, which is related to life expectancy, if you are above 75, uh, 42, excuse me, doctors per uh, thousand inhabitants, your life expectancy is around uh, 75 years. So what is the current education situation for surgeons in Mexico? Mexican surgeons are in need of further training in laparoscopic procedures. 
there are limited opportunities to train, further training is expensive, and there's no standardized surgical principles. And at the end, Mexican patients deserve good surgical outcomes. What's adoption of laparoscopic surgery in Mexico? When we were developing the ILA program, we estimated that around 20% of abdominal procedures are undertaken using minimal invasive techniques. We don't really know. And, and nowadays, the funding for laparoscopic surgery in the country has been cut off. So it's even less than this. But out of these publications that I found in the literature, in a central state called Guanajuato, during year 2015, there were almost 28,000 procedures performed laparoscopically, and 75% of them were only cholecystectomies. The rest, like appendectomies and hernias and stuff, it was really, really um, not meaningful. In this other paper, looking at a basic laparoscopic surgery teaching model in general residents done by one of my friends in Tijuana, Dr. Sergio Lee. What I wanted to show about this paper is that they reported their experience from 2008 to 2011 in laparoscopic surgery, and they only performed 1,100 uh, uh, cases. In this other paper, of the second largest institute, health institution in the country, they look at historical background, present, and perspectives in minimal invasive surgery. They estimated that they could do around two, uh, around two, um, 2,600 cases in one year. And at the end, they saw that they just completed the expectancy or the demand in 30% of the cases, which is a huge difference from what was planned. Then there's this survey to gynecologic surgeons in the country performing laparoscopy, and the survey was directed towards their residents. The residents saw that they didn't have any laparoscopic cases in, in, in uh, public hospitals in almost 50% of the cases. They only operated one to two times every 90 days a laparoscopic case. And they only had two in 30 days, two laparoscopic cases in 7.6%. When they look at the princip principal limitations factors, there, wasn't, there was no surgeons uh, in terms of the faculty that were properly trained there were not enough cases, and there was no dexterity from the part of the residents and lack of instruments in almost 40% of the times. So when you look at this, you feel like we are throwing our residents and your young surgeons to the cliffs, expecting them to survive without proper training. This is the national, I should say, this was the National Medical Center where I did my rotations when I was a medical student in 1985, and I don't know, Dr. Price wasn't there at that time, but there was a major earthquake, and ha almost ha half of the National Medical Center was destroyed. So when I came in as a resident, it changed a lot. Look at all those buildings that are not there anymore. 
In Mexico, when we finish general surgery uh, residency, we go to remote communities to do what we call social service. I went to the southern state of Chiapas, a beautiful state, and to this town called Motocintla. When I got there, I saw that the environment was beautiful, it's high in the mountains, there's a lot of clouds and rain and, and forest. And this was the health center that I work in and I did surgery in this place. I should tell you that in four months, I did 90% of my appendectomy cases for perforated appendicitis, 90%. And the other thing that struck me when I was there is that there was a lot of kids but these kids didn't smile. They look sad all the time. And that's really something, because they feel that there's no hope. With this in mind, life has mysterious ways. And from there, I went to Mayo in Rochester, Minnesota, and I worked with Dr. Heidi Nelson. I had the pleasure to work with her. And this was really something, because at this time, there was a major concern about the behavioral tumoral cells under neomoperitoneum. There were some uh, clinical trials looking at this, but we needed basic research to demonstrate what was, what was happening. So I operated around 1,000 mice. I can stand a mouse today. And there were two objectives we were looking at. One of them, whether we were implanting tumor cells in the trocar sites, and the other one, that perhaps laparoscopy had a protective effect on tumor growth. At the end, we demonstrated that laparoscopic simulated cichectomy was not affected adversely on local factors or favorably affecting systemic factors influencing tumor growth. And basically, what the conclusion was that surgical technique was the most important issue in not disseminating tumor cells. Came back to Mexico to work in this hospital of, uh, the, of the biggest uh, health institution, public, and I started to face these kind of cases, really nasty, uh, complicated, uh, biliary duct and, and, and cholecystitis cases. And I thought of Dr. Halstead saying surgery would be delightful if you did not have to operate. And as it went on, I witnessed some of these cases that uh, my uh, colleagues, and sometimes myself, get into without really considering what's our adversary. Do we know well what are we fighting with? And maybe we don't. And I feel that sometimes we get into the OR with this attitude and we don't care what our arbitrary really is. We think we can deal with just about anything. And this is the hardest part. This is a case where there's no inflammation. I don't know what was the indication of this procedure. If you look at the, how is it, the traction and exposure of the pathocystic triangle, you can immediately see that the, the surgeon didn't have a clue what he's doing. There was no stop rules. But the, the saddest thing about this case is that supposedly there's a surgical team. Is anyone in that room 
aware of what is going on and stop the surgeon from completing these procedures. So what are the factors involved in this kind of tragedy? Not knowing surgical anatomy, ignoring surgical technique or surgical indications, lack of professional surgical team, lack of safe cholecystectomy initiatives, critical view of safety perhaps, lack of ethics, not knowing own limitations or not having common sense, and at the end, not having culture of safe cholecystectomy. And then uh, I started to have inspiration from the, the work of, of, of Dr. Michael Bront there. And I was thinking, how can we do this in our country? Because we need it. Because we know that complications of laparoscopic cholecystectomy are two times higher than open, that the incidence is underreported, and the, the rates are still high even when lab quality has been introduced to surgical training programs. These are our numbers in Mexico. There's three, three trials looking at the same thing. The rates is still high, and the factors that these authors uh, come up with is the risk comes from delay, delay of surgery from the first episode, lack of minimal invasive surgery training, lack of minimal invasive equipment. This is the hospital that I work in in Mexico City. It's a state-of-the-art hospital. But we still train our residents the old traditional way. And we made a, a, a comedy clip to illustrate this. I hope you enjoy it. Sounds familiar? I, I got the honor to be the, the, the president of Mexican Association of General Surgery in 2018. The Mexican Association of General Surgery has as a mission to provide continuous update in knowledge and surgical education to general surgeons in order to establish better surgical practice favoring patient safety. When I got to be the president, I, th I thought, what am I going to do different? I, I must do something else to have educa surgical education come closer to the members of the society. So we decided to create learning centers establish a safe surgery program, train educators with continuous supervised activities, learning surgical activities and with no fee whatsoever for the members. Dr. Diego Camacho, uh, Director of Laparoscopic Surgery and Endoscopy at Montefiore from Guatemala, good friend of mine and with a Latin American way of thinking. One day of really extenuous work, we were speaking about life. And we decided that we needed to do something else for people in our countries. So we dreamed and we come up with a plan. We decided to throw the rock and see how far it got. So Dr. Camacho introduced me to Dr. Jeffrey Hasey, at that time chair of the SAGES Global Affairs Committee. Uh, in talking, I talked to Dr. Hasey and I wrote my letter to Santa Claus. I showed him that I wanted to bring basic principles in laparoscopic surgery and create a safe lab quality program to start with. And from there, I wanted to bring telementoring in advanced laparoscopic surgery for colorectal, bariatrics, and hernia surgery. And I proposed it to the leadership of the Global Affairs Committee. 
and the letter came back and there was no such the present that I was expecting. But it wasn't that bad because they made me see that they could guide us to develop the knowledge and skills and attitudes to create an independent surgical education program in Mexico to improve surgeon-specific and patient-specific outcomes for minimal invasive operations. So with this in mind, we knew we had to create a team. And it had to be a very good team so we can expedite things as I was the president of the society. So with Dr. Camacho and the Global Affairs Committee Executive Secretary, Jacqueline Narvaez, we created the core team. And I proposed this to the leadership of the America, uh, Mexican Association of General Surgery, that we have a joint venture with SAGES with the objective of expanding surgical education by training Mexican surgeons in the best laparoscopic techniques. The mission statement of SAGES is very similar to that of the Mexican Association of General Surgery, so we knew we were in, with the right people. We knew it because they had a lot of principles that we don't have. They knew what a competent surgeon was. It was the, the one that had a cognitive skill, but also had the technical skills. How do you develop technical proficiency? By learning properly, by practicing deliberate practice, by evaluating and receiving feedback, and then getting to practice more and do reevaluate. And they showed us that to get competence, you need a proper training, but you have, it's very important that you do the deliberate practice because not every student has got the same pace to learn. So uh, if you have the proper training and the practice, those curves are going eventually to even up in performance. And then it came the next step of the rock where I make Dr. Ray Price. And right away when I met Dr. Price, I knew that I was with the right guy. Why? Because Dr. Price went to Mongolia with the Global Affairs Committee, and in a country that there was no laparoscopic surgery whatsoever, he established a national standard for the training in laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which was a major achievement. So, I'm going to mention now ILAP, although you know that it's not the official name anymore, but we'll see the transition later on. The ILAP seeks to standardize training and education in laparoscopy to deliver high-quality patient care in minimally invasive surgery. The specific program goals were to increase adoption laparoscopic techniques, to improve outcomes by decreasing risk uh, rates of conversion to open surgery and lowering morbidity, length of state, and short term to return to work and activity in a safe uh, educational environment. The program identified regional and national champions for quality and patient safety, creating an educational capacity at local levels in depth to analyze the educational needs, which is a major step, and then defining goals, develop a strategic development, uh, 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 educational strategy, program implementations, and evaluation and refinement. So how was the Mexican way of getting the pathway to independence? Created a mentor surgical education program. Assessing our needs, 
defining goals, determining educational strategies, implementing faculty development simultaneously with skills and training, and assess, evaluate, and provide feedback. This is the course agenda, dividing it in two different uh, uh, objectives, the ILAP Enduring Education and the ILAP Skills Coursework. Basically, the program pretended to bring the learning curve to the lab and minimize surgical complications. We did our first course, the pilot course, at the General Military Hospital in Mexico City, a state-of-the-art hospital, and thanks to my friend, General Hector Noyola, we could have a two-day intensive care in surgical educators course, the, train, the trainer's course, and a two-day intensive operative proctoring course for laparoscopic cholecystectomy. The, the leaders of the project trained surgeons in standardized principles and safe surgery under supervision of people of SAGES and Mexican Association of General Surgery. In this, in this time, we trained 18 local champions coming out two out of nine locations in the country. There were there 45 new educators, educators and more than 50 residents. The program was based on simulated, on simulated education. We have the FLS, but also have these, uh, these other models that we put pig organs inside. And after the course, we did this service trying to see what was the impression of residents and surgeons in terms of how they perceive the feedback from the attendants or how the attendings help them to improve their, their performance or whether the faculty were interested in surgical education. And three months after we saw this difference, we applied again the same test, and you see that it was pretty even now. The residents were feeling more comfortable with their attendings, they were having a better relationship to work together. Then we have our first course in Guadalajara. We, we train nine uh, educators. Here I have to give special thanks to Dr. Rodrigo Prieto and Dr. Ana Sofia Gonzalez Rubio that created this really complex mat matrix in Excel to have the program established from then on, and it is the same program that was working in the last courses. We also assessed the necessity to create what, what we called the junior faculty. We had a lot of residents participating in certain activities during the, during the course, but in between the activities of the attendings, the residents were getting bored. So the junior faculty took care of them, put them in the simulators, and they did didactics and stuff, and they were really happy about creating this. In Guadalajara, we applied the same thing, and this is very funny because the impression of the residents uh, all of the attendings about their performance is that they were doing really well and look at the impression of the residents. So you could see here that the attendings were believing that their performance was the more adequate. And I love the face of Dr. Alejandro Gonzalez Ojeda, a PhD and researcher in total disbelief at what the residents thought about his performance as an educator. But after three months, again, this improved a lot in, in, in many of the issues that were an analyzed. Then we went to Pachuca. 
with Dr. Jordan Zamora. We went to Orizaba with Dr. Fabre. And in Orizaba, the people complain about not having FLS simulators. So we had with us Dr. Kathy Varnes, an expert on low-cost simulators, and she created this amazing activity of a contest of creating the best low-cost simulator for the attendance of the residents, and they were really excited, and all the simulators worked pretty well. And from then on, this, this uh, activity was part of the formal program. While we were at Orizaba, Ms. Barbara Bercy passed away, Sage's mom, so we spent a moment to honor his memory, her memory. We went further, and we proposed to Dr. Kathy Barnes whether she could help us to improve our surgery, uh, general surgery program. And we had a two-day activity analyzing our program and seeing in, in breakout sessions, assessing areas for improvement that we then sent to the major university in Mexico City. It came uh, a time for a second uh, course at the military hospital. But this year was a little different because we had a, a new activity. Coming back from the rehearsal of the earthquake that we do every September 19, we got into the hospital again, and this happened. Dr. Price was there. We had another major earthquake on the same date that we had it like 20 years before. And we had to stop the course because we don't know what was going on. We didn't know how the families of the, of the alumni and the rest of the surgeons were. And we look at the damage in the city and how many buildings came down. We felt that we had to stop the course. Dr. Price already showed you that we went to the Red Cross. This is my own apartment. Some of the shelves came down with books. And then we worked at the Red Cross. There was no patient that we could help with, but we, we helped uh, having supplies for the people in shelters ready. And I don't know how to thank all the SAGES team that really helped us through this hard time in Mexico for three or four days. We went to Leon with Dr. Raul Hernandez Centeno. We went to Ciudad Obregón with Dr. Armando Barreda. And in Obregón, the residents designed this low-cost simulator, $5 simulator with wood, that actually works pretty well. We went to Mérida with Dr. Marco Loera, a current vice president of the Mexican Association of General Surgery. And we ended up this stage in Mazatlan with Dr. Elena Lopez Gavito, present here, former, uh, 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 she was president at that time of the association. What we learned of the program is that there was a lack of further surgical education, creating low rate of laparoscopic procedures. SAGES and Mexican Association of General Surgery Collaboration standardized training in, in minimal invasive surgery. The ILAP, GLAP program, through enduring education was a pathway to independence training local champions. Collecting data allowed us to address surgeons and residents' behavior change. The current data show a change in surgical education paradigm 
and it was the basis for program global application. Then we move on and went to Montefiore with Dr. Camacho to start writing the GLAP manual. And as Dr. Pratt showed you, we went to the Mexican Senate to show our governors, that, our, our uh, senators, that there's no more laparoscopic surgery in Mexico because there's no education, but also there's no equipment. And we needed, we were looking for support. The best that we get out of that session is that we got published in Sage's bulletin because the senators couldn't care less about it. Then, thanks to Dr. Michael Brunt, we, translate, we started the work to translate the safe cholecystectomy deducted models to Spanish. Now you can find this in the SAGES webpage. And I apologize for not putting here a picture of Dr. Federico Serrot that was together with me and helped a lot in doing this really, really tough work for several months. And I thank you, Federico. And then to promote the modules, we did a, se a seminar web in Spanish about safe cholecystectomy uh, that was uh, online with the help a lot of very important surgeons uh, as Dr. Horacio Asbun, Dr. Camacho, Dr. Telem, Dr. Brunt, Dr. Cava, Dr. Serrot, and it was a total success. And then COVID came and it changed everything. Thanks to the envision and hard work of Dr. Linda Shang and the Global Affairs Committee, they created what is called now the GLAP, the GLAP program. The GLAP program has a lot of advantages over the ILAP program because it's online. They publish this in surgical endoscopy and they show that with telementoring, they can train residents. And of course, this has more penetration and can reach a lot more residents and, and surgeons around the globe, I should say. So it's really nice that they have now this program that I'm sure is going to be in the love of, of uh, areas of the world. At the, the same time, we created in Mexico what is called the Surgery Hub, which is, is an educational platform the Surgery Hub is devoted to bring uh, knowledge to residents and surgeons that don't have a lot of opportunities to get access to laparoscopic uh, training. We have webinars and we have courses and we have a blog and lately we finally have a workshop in endoscopic surgery in Mexico City in one of the big hospitals. That was a total success, and a lot of young people came and stayed with us for many hours learning how to endoscopically suture. I almost at the end, I am proud to show you the critical view of safety, anterior and posterior, of our residents in the different programs that we run in different cities. This is Dr. Angel Escudero Fabre, a surgeon from, uh, from Orizaba, Veracruz, and this testimony was really heartbreaking, and Dr. Price knows about this. This is a surgeon that worked for many years and felt that he could have done a lot more whether he knew 
all this educational surgical technique that we provide. So today, I feel that the rock is still flying, and I don't know where it's going to end, but I'm happy about what we have done through all this time. And I hope we can get children and Mexican patients like this happy with good surgical outcomes. I thank you again very much, and it was a pleasure to be with you this morning. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.